Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, listeners. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation that I had with Cassandra Quinn about radical candor. We really got into some wonderful stuff that can be applied working with nanny families from the parents to the kids and also is really applicable across your life for any conversations that you're having in your life. I'm really excited for you to hear it. I, it's so long that I had to break it into two parts. Now, if you are hoping to hear both parts right now, there's a way that you can do that. You can go over to patreon.com slash chronicles of Nania and sign up to be a Patreon. And that way you get access to episodes early. You get access to ad-free episodes. You get to be part of a Facebook group community of like-minded caregivers. And you get bonus episodes, which we have two of. One, I'm talking about true crime. And the other one, I'm talking about boundaries with two wonderful nannies. So check that out. Head on over to Patreon and you could listen to the whole episode, parts one and two today. They're there waiting for you. And here is the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Chronicles of Nannia, a nanny resource podcast made for nannies by me, a nanny. This is your host, Martha Tyler. And this week, we are talking to one of my dear friends, Cassandra Quinn, about radical candor and effective communication. And I am just so, so excited to have you back on the podcast, Cassandra. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. It's been quite a while and I'm excited to be talking about this topic with you. Yes, I am so excited uh, to be talking to you as well. The To remind listeners, the last time Cassandra was on, she was on um, talking about theater and kids. Um, and so this time she's back on to share some more of her wonderful knowledge. Um, before we get started talking about radical candor and all of that, all that that entails, um, let's hear kind of your journey, both working with children, but I would also love to hear your journey with radical candor. 
Absolutely. So my journey working with children, I began working with children when I was in high school. And I, I think one of my very first jobs was working at a daycare and I worked at a couple different daycares in high school. And then as that journey continued, I uh, was just always drawn to working with kids. I thought at one point I was going to be an elementary school uh, teacher. Mm-hmm. And I had, I, that was even my declared major for like half a semester. And then I realized that there were lots of wonderful ways to work with children that didn't involve being a classroom teacher. And that's when I switched to, to being a theater major and a sociology major. And then soon after, soon-ish after college, I actually co-founded my own children's theater that's based here in Chicago. And so we travel all over the country bringing week-long theater experiences to kids and taking them from auditions to performance of a musical in just five days. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've been a teaching artist and working in that capacity with kids and really working at other children's theaters before and during that as well for, uh, well, my children's theater, Compass Creative Dramatics, just celebrated nine years last month. I can't believe it's been that long. (laughs) I know me neither. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I was really excited. Um, when I, I had that realization, I was like, Oh my gosh, we're almost at a decade. Um, but even before that, you know, and during that working for other, uh, theaters and working with kids in that capacity. So that's really my primary way that I have been an educator and been a caregiver is in the context of being a therapist. Yes. Love that. And then you started getting into Radical Candor. Yes. So Radical Candor was something I introduced to while I was going through a business acceleration program that I had been accepted into for my children's theater. So the business program I was in, one of my fellows introduced me to a book called Radical Candor is by a woman named Kim Scott. And I immediately fell in love with it because it put into words and gave me a framework of something I already believed in and was already working to practice, but I I just didn't have all the right words for it yet. And so it just opened up my eyes and it allowed for me to be more effective with it because of being given a specific framework. Don't you love when that happens? Yes, it's that, delightful. Yeah, that I had a similar feeling um, to that with positive discipline. I was like, oh, this is <laughs> this is what I've been trying to get at. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about radical candor. Can you help uh, me and listeners understand what it, what does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So at its core, at its simplest, radical candor is where you are both simultaneously showing that you care personally while challenging directly. So that means that you are being both direct and honest while being compassionate is another way to think about it or frame it. So at its core, radical candor basically has four kind, it's clear, it's specific, and it's sincere. And so you can always do a gut check and see, am I being kind? Am I being clear? Am I being specific? Am I being sincere? And if you can say yes to all of those things, you're likely landing uh, in radical candor. Yes, I love that. And actually, this week, I made um, 
a like checklist for my nanny kids, the uh, think before you speak. So mm -hmm. is it true? Is it helpful? I said, is it inclusive? I've seen, is it inspirational a lot, but that feels very um, intangible to me. Whereas mm -hmm. inclusive feels much more like you can actually see if you're being inclusive or not. Mm -hmm. um, and then is it necessary and is it kind? So I, I just, that reminded me of that, that we talk about, if it's not all five of those things, probably you don't need to say it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think that that think acronym works really well paired with radical candor. And so I'm so glad that you brought them up because I think they're wonderful companions. <laughs> yes. And I still like think it to myself a lot. Now it's up on the wall at um, my place of work, but like, I think it to myself a lot because it is, it's, um, our words have so much power. And especially when we are working with children, <laughs> mm -hmm. our words have so much power. Yeah, it's really incredible how much children look to us to model and they don't even realize they're doing it. And so when we are able to really effectively model this great behavior, we can be influencing them in a way that like is going to be core to how they grow up, not just in that moment, but like it will be a core value or core behavior for the rest of their lives. Yeah. It, it yeah, it really gets in there. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're building like the pathways, the neural pathways, they are building the neural pathways in their brain using some of our words. Exactly. Um, yes, that's is, what I was trying to say. And you said it more eloquently. Yeah. Than I um, yeah. So um, I'm curious about the other three quadrants. Can you talk me through those? Yeah, absolutely. So in the framework of radical candor, they have it on an axis. So in the top right hand axis is where we are in radical candor. So the higher we are on the care personally, that is the, the vertical axis. And then the horizontal axis is the challenge directly. And so when we are both caring personally and challenging directly, we are in that top right quadrant. However, we can end up in <laughs> some of the other quadrants by moving along those axis. So the axis direction that I tend to go when I'm not landing in radical candor, so I'll start there first, mm -hmm. is moving left on the horizontal axis away from challenging directly. And I think that a lot of times caregivers often are moving left on that challenging directly. We are very good <laughs> at caring personally, but sometimes shy away from challenging directly. And so when we're in that top left quadrant, that is what's called ruinous empathy. So mm -hmm. that is showing very much so that you care, but challenging directly is missing. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. Um, do you have like an, an example of that? Yeah. So let's see. I think that a great example of ruinous empathy can be 
um, when you're just generally speaking, uh, when you sugarcoat something or you're afraid to pull off the bandaid, um, destructive sympathy, silence. Um, sometimes we think, well, I, I, if I don't say anything, that's probably better, but that was actually landing you in, in ruinous empathy. Um, because ultimately it might feel nice or safe to avoid saying something, but ultimately it's unhelpful and sometimes even damaging. And so that's, that's kind of another way to frame it. I'm trying to think of a more specific example to give you for yeah, ruining sympathy. I'm curious, is, is that like toxic positivity of like, mm. um, of like, it'll be okay. Or like, um, uh, I'm trying to yeah. think of other examples, but that, you know, that like feeling of, of, um, yeah, like that saccharine sugary, um, like you're amazing with like nothing to back it up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that those are good examples of landing and, and ruinous empathy or a version of it. I think that yes, toxic positivity, I think can be guilty of it. I also think that like when we couch things too much. And what I mean by that is when we are trying to speak up for ourselves and let's say uh, somebody is, you know, running late to relieve us from work, for example, <laughs> and they, they, they get there and they're, you know, a half hour, hour late and it now has disrupted your whole day. Uh, and it's, and it's a habit. It's not just one, a one-off thing. And you are always like, oh, it's no big deal. It's fine. I, I can, I can deal with it. It's, it's not, it's not really a big deal. All of that is really sugarcoating or, or couching. And especially if you're trying to pair it with challenging, but you're like, you know, it'd be really great if this, uh, doesn't happen anymore, but it's really not a big deal. And you like bury the fact that you're trying to tell them don't do this anymore. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so the message gets muddied, the message gets lost. So that's, that's really what can happen sometimes with ruinous empathy. Um, it's also like not being direct enough when you're giving feedback. And so you might say, oh, well, I might just need you to, to pay attention a little closer so that these mistakes don't happen anymore, but it's totally fine. And you're doing great. And I, I love it. And it's perfect. Like, see how... <laughs> Yes. People That's talk so that way, right? Know, like, yeah. you're like, what? what? I'm sorry. I'm not sure what you need me to do. <laughs> and so those are ways that I think that people can commonly land in ruinous empathy. So that's one of the other quadrants. The other one that is uh, on the bottom right hand quadrant. So that is still staying really far right on the challenge directly, but we've slid down the vertical axis on the care personally to the right hand quadrant, which is called obnoxious aggression. Oh, <laughs> and doesn't sound I, good. No, no. Uh, but I think it's, it's a really, um, people can easily fall into that when we're, they're feeling fed up, right? Mm -hmm. They're finally able and willing to stand up for themselves, but because they are challenging directly without caring personally, it's going to end up falling on deaf ears. And so obnoxious aggression uh, really is 
about putting our own feelings over the feelings of the listener. Uh, it often looks like lashing out and can also, well, I, in terms of like giving a real world example of this, I think that call out culture sometimes can fall in obnoxious aggression. And I want to be very clear that I understand the value of call out culture in certain instances and the value of uh, holding people accountable publicly. But I yes. think that there's also plenty of instances that uh, what sometimes people call calling in where you're able to have a private conversation with someone where you show that they matter, that you see their humanity, that you understand, uh, and have empathy for their, their, their existence, I guess. That's not the, quite the word I was looking for, but, um, having understanding and empathy for their journey, I guess is a better way to put it, while also challenging something specific that they've said or done uh, can be a lot more effective in creating change in that person. Because think about it, if, if somebody comes at you and they're like, Martha, how dare you? You're such a jerk. And then they lay into you about something that you did wrong. Are you going to be able to listen or receive that very well? No, no, not no. at all. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe you really were a jerk. I can't imagine a world in which you've been a jerk, but <laughs> there, there have been times. I, I know that there have been times, but, but we have to remember like, what is the outcome that we're looking for in this conversation and really keep that at the center of what we're focusing on too. Not only are we trying to challenge directly and care personally, but when we are offering feedback or when we are having a conversation that we have an ask or an outcome that we're working towards, we need to be making choices that keep the listener, keep the, the, the person that we're in conversation with in the most open and uh, relaxed state. Because if you put somebody into a fight or flight mode because of the way that you're communicating, you're not going to be able to get to your outcome anyway. And so making choices that allow for you to be kind, be clear, be sincere, um, and be direct really allow um, for you to better get to those outcomes. Yes. I love that. Um, really quickly. I wanted to say that, um, I am actually reading a book right now, um, by hold on John Ronson, um, who is a journalist and I really like his stuff, um, called, so you've been publicly shamed. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really interesting. It doesn't really have anything to do with nannying at all. But when you brought up call out culture, it made me think of this book that I'm reading because that's, a, that's somewhat what he's exploring is like, can we actually have those conversations in a really public way? Um, which is not the point of this podcast. So we'll stop talking about it. But <laughs> At some point, I would love <laughs> to hang out with you, Cassandra, and we could talk about it. Because yes, I love I it. That sounds take like on it would be great. I, yeah, I think that sounds really interesting. Um, but yeah, I do think that keeping in mind, especially in our jobs as nannies, <laughs> um, I think keeping in mind both when we are in that quadrant, but also when our nanny kids are in that quadrant. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that a lot of times um, we can really, especially when they're tired or hungry or whatever, we can really like take that 
very personally when mm-hmm. it might be a lack of skills to get themselves to a different quadrant rather than that they're meaning to hurt our feelings. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that doesn't just apply to the children that we're working with. It applies to everyone. And it because it could be because they're having a bad day or they're experiencing something negative in that moment. Or like you said, for the children, they just haven't developed the skills in order to communicate more effectively. And I think that that happens a lot in our culture because we don't teach people to communicate in a systematic way, the way that we do other skills. And what I mean by that is think about like, for example, uh, teaching kids math, right? We have a whole, or humans math, we have a whole system to people equals two all the way to calculus and beyond, right? Mm -hmm. And, but we don't take a first grader and hand them a calculus book and go, well, (laughs) humans are capable of it. Right. That's not what we do to first graders with math. And yet I think that we treat communication that way for people. We we treat it as it's an innate ability rather than a learned skill. And it absolutely is a learned skill that we mostly in our culture now have to learn just by example, as opposed to having it broken down in a way that we can learn it in a in a method that can build on itself and really be accessible the way that we have systematized learning other things. Yes, I completely agree with that. And that also offers, like, we don't offer kids all that much practice that is low stakes at communicating, right? Like if they mess up communicating, a lot of times like the punishment is swift and pretty severe. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, there's no room for like, oh, I just didn't say, like that wasn't what I meant to say at all. Right, right, exactly. And I think that like, again, children aren't given a chance to practice low state communication And neither are adults, frankly. And so we spend our whole existence having to quote unquote practice in our own real lives and often in high stakes situations that have consequences. And so I really believe that part of my existence and part of what I am here to do in the world is help shift that for people, help shift the fact that we don't have space to systematize learning and getting access to communication and conversation training in a way that makes everyone feel empowered like they can do it and creating space for them to practice because we spend so much time in learning mode and there's learning and training and in what we miss is that very last step to the most level of success is practice and being able to get feedback in a safe space with someone who is there to guide you. And so that is what I do both within my children's theater is creating space for children to stretch their bravery muscles and their creativity muscles and be able to, uh, to explore. I don't even like to use the word fail anymore. I think every, every time we attempt something and it doesn't go the way we expect it, we're learning And so reframing everything that people might label as a failure is just a learning um, is is so valuable, both for children and adults. Um, I agree. 
And I realized too, I, I love where this conversation is going, but I realized I, I hadn't quite gotten to that fourth quadrant. Yes, I was about sense. to ask. Let's okay. go back and collect that fourth quadrant. Yeah, yeah. So the last quadrant that we haven't talked about is in that bottom left, which is really far left on the horizontal of the challenge directly, which means it's, it's not challenging directly at all. Uh, and it's also down on the care personally uh, on the low side. And so that is, what is manipulative insincerity. Mm. And so manipulative insincerity, really like some other ways to frame that is never people uh, being sneaky or manipulative, uh, being a pot stirrer or offering fake praise or backstabbing. A lot of times in work situations, it's talking about someone instead of to someone about a problem and letting it get through the grapevine. Uh, it's, it's praising someone to manipulate them into doing what you want rather than it being sincere. And I think that luckily most of us stay out of that quadrant most of the time. (laughs) And I, I have to admit, I've definitely landed in manipulative insincerity at times in my life. Uh, but certainly those are the exceptions to my lifestyle and not the rule. Um, but something that I found was fascinating that I was running a short four week class back at the beginning of the year with some really lovely professionals who are wanting to develop their communication skills and develop their ability to have difficult conversations, which by the way, I'm going to interrupt myself. I know that people frame it as difficult conversations. So I use that language to mirror how people talk about it, but I also like to reframe it as important conversations Mm. Mm-hmm. Because think about it, anything that we are feeling like is a difficult conversation is most likely also an important conversation. And I think that that the mindset shift, even from going from, oh, this is difficult to this is important, already makes it more accessible. It may still have the stakes being really high, but I think that the the negative framing of difficult already creates a barrier that we don't need to have. Agreed. That's such a good reframing. Cause I know that I have a, I think I, I'm pretty sure I have a podcast called difficult conversations. So good. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's a feeling that we all have. I mean, I have it sometimes, but I, I, I actively remind myself that when something is feeling difficult for a conversation, that probably also means that it is important and focusing on the importance of the conversation and why is it important? What outcome am I working towards rather than being just like, Oh, Oh no, this is so hard because if that's where we're focused on, that's the results that we're going to get. But if we're focused on the outcome, if we're focused on the ability to have an important conversation that moves the needle in some positive way in our life, we're going to be much more effective in that conversation. Yes. Okay. So how does, let's relate that back to. Yes. What I, how I interrupted myself. (laughs) So I was running this four week class and we were doing these exercises because I love simulation. Okay. Uh Like that is a core of what I do when I'm working with people and coaching them. And so I work with professional improvisers who allow the people I'm working with to get that really hands-on practice. And we were doing these exercises where my improvisers were presenting scenarios 
And the people taking the class were trying to be able to figure out and label whether something was radical candor, obnoxious aggression, ruinous empathy, or manipulative insincerity. Well, here's a couple of things that I want to bring up as we're talking about that. Something that's important to remember is that radical candor is judged at the listener's ears, Mm. not the speaker's mouth. (laughs) So no matter how much we intend to land in radical candor, we have to be calibrating to not to, not only to every person that we're speaking to, but every conversation because just because Martha, you and I have known each other for years, we have a general sense of like how we communicate and what is well-received and, and what might be certain ways that we need things framed or presented to us. Right. Right. Uh, But there might be days where I am just not as open to feedback as I am on a different day because of the type of day that I've had. And so coming in and assuming, oh, Cassandra is usually really open to feedback. She has a, you know, a growth mentality. And I know that she loves that kind of support. So I'm going to be really direct with her, but let's say I've just had a really sensitive day and you come at me really directly in a way that I'm usually receptive to. And is usually in that right balance of care personally challenged directly, but you don't calibrate to my energy and where I am in that moment, you can accidentally land in that obnoxious aggression, you know? Yeah. And so realizing that we can't allow ourselves to take shortcuts with our, I mean, our brain is designed to take shortcuts, but becoming consciously aware of those shortcuts and going, okay, I know typically this is how this person likes to communicate, but I can read in this moment that this isn't working and calibrating to adjust that care personally or challenge directly um, for that moment. So <laughs> obviously I'm always working towards trying to be in the radical candor quadrant, but I feel like <laughs> I'm proud of myself sometimes because I'm like, well, if I'm going to land in one of the other quadrants, I'm likely to be in the ruinous empathy one. Like that's just how I am. And I used to not worry too much about the fact that if I wasn't, I wasn't always landing in radical candor. Cause I'm like, well, at least I'm caring personally. Right. right, right <laughs> and right. so what happened though, during this class and during the simulation where we were giving these scenarios where the observers were labeling them and trying to sort out what they thought was radical candor, obnoxious aggression, ruinous empathy, and manipulative insincerity is all of the scenarios that myself and the improvisers created to demonstrate what we perceived as ruinous empathy split the room. Mm -hmm. And every single one of those examples that we gave half the room, and it wasn't always the same people, half the room labeled it as manipulative insincerity. Wow. And I went, holy cow. I had never considered the fact that because I was unwilling to challenge directly, that it could not only that, that my kindness would be read as insincere as well. Yeah. That is, that's, that's impactful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of, it shook me to be honest. I was like, wow, <laughs> it just really opened my eyes. And that's part of the reason I love teaching is that I learn so much in the teacher seat too. Like I am very much, 
um, the, a believer in that we are all learners and we are all teachers when we come together in a space, uh, regardless of our age. And that's how I run Compass Creative Dramatics. We have a, a blended teaching philosophy that, that really leans heavily on, on Montessori style. And, and the same thing for my coaching adult clients that I work with too. It, it's really, really cool and impactful to see the ways that I was able to learn by going through that process. I thought I was teaching and man, I learned something in that day. Yes. Yes. That is, that's so interesting. And I was thinking when you were talking about manipulative insincerity Mm -hmm. of the ways that sometimes as nannies, we probably are in that quadrant Mm -hmm. of like trying to get a certain behavior, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like we want to see this behavior. And so sometimes (laughs) we are um, probably insincere in, in how we're getting there. And something that I've learned from positive discipline is like praise versus encouragement. Mm. So praise mm-hmm. is that just like blanket, like good job. Yeah. <laughs> um, and encouragement is very specific. And so I think that if, if you're listening or certainly my thinking right now is like, I think a lot of the times when I am landing as a nanny in manipulative insincerity, that it's probably because I'm praising instead of encouraging Mm. and that being more specific about what I appreciated that the child was doing can help me get out of that quadrant, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that reminds me of some statistics that I sometimes use when I'm presenting this information to business professionals is that 79.6% of employees look for other employment after receiving negative feedback. However, that number still stays as high as 41.7% of employees look for employment after receiving positive feedback. So it's still nearly half and you go, oh my gosh, why is that positive feedback? And they are still looking for another job. And then another statistic that I think helps kind of paint the picture that I think is happening here is that only 14.5% of leaders strongly agree that they're effective at giving feedback. Hmm. And so what I think is happening there is it's not just a matter of, is it positive or negative? It is a matter of the effectiveness, the specificity of the praise, right? Because think about it. Think about how you may have worked really hard on a project at work and you spent hours and hours and you invested a lot of your, your time and your energy and your efforts. And, and then somebody comes along and they go, good job, Martha, Mm -hmm. keep it up. Yep. Is that, is that really very helpful or effective? Yeah. Or, or you do a presentation at, at work and, and everyone is excited and, and your boss might say, great job, keep it up, do the same thing again. And you're like, the same thing. What is the same thing? Like, I, th- like what specifically worked? And so it's really important when you're giving praise. And I think this is very true. Um, and this is what I would always teach my teaching artists too, working with Compass is that do not give empty praise. It, it not only confuses what it is that you want that child to do. If you just say, good job, 
And it also waters down the praise when you say, absolutely, that's great in front of a room of students or children when it's not great. It waters down the praise Mm -hmm. and waters down the meaning of it. And it confuses the other children about what is right and wrong. What, what are we trying to, and wrong, I shouldn't have used that word, but what, what are we looking to model? What are we looking to hold on to? And what are we looking to let go of? And so the specificity in praise is absolutely key, both on an individual basis. And when we're giving, uh, praise in a group. And, and that reminds me too of, of remembering that praise should often happen publicly as much as we can, not only because that helps reinforce it for the listener who's getting the praise, but also for everyone who is around hearing that praise because mm-hmm. they go, ah, I get it. Okay. That's what's being recognized. That is the behavior that uh, I want to model as well. And then inversely, when we are needing to give more critical feedback or constructive feedback, that is usually done best because when people are feeling publicly shamed or or publicly called out, it usually shuts them down and they're not as, as receptive to the feedback. Right. Yes. Because there is, there's this whole other level of like, am I still loved? Like, am I still part of this group? And that is such a scary place to be no matter how old you are. It's Mm -hmm. terrifying when you're a child. Um, It's, you know, life-threatening. It feels life-threatening. So, Mm -hmm. um, I completely agree. Uh, and even inside of a family, I really do try to stick to that of like, if I want to see more of a behavior of, you know, oh, thank you, Susie. Thank you so much for helping me put away these groceries. It is so meaningful, you know, saying it very loudly. <laughs> right, right. I love that. One of the things too that I, and I don't know if maybe this is something I learned from you along the way um, or where I learned this, but this idea of like, also flipping the praise back on the person. And, and what I mean by that is like, rather than just, and this I think is especially effective for, for kids, but I think for everyone is not only saying I'm proud of you for what a specific thing, but also reframing it. So they get to have ownership of that pride, right? Yes, so yes. saying, uh, you, I hope that you feel proud of yourself because I know that I am. Yes. Yes. Or, uh, one of my like catchphrases is, wow, you must feel so proud. Like I just watched you walk across that balance beam all by yourself. You must feel so proud. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Love it. Love that. Um, awesome. Okay. So I love all of this. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about getting into some details for how we can use this in our nanny days. So one of the ways that I think that this comes up for me a lot as a nanny is those important conversations. Um, I know that as a nanny, a lot of times, even when I know I'm doing a fantastic job, You know, like, know that deep down in my heart. A lot of times, if I have to bring something up to the parents, especially if it has to do with money, 
or it has to do with um, behavior from the children. I can feel really overwhelmed going into those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very normal when we are having to talk about money, especially. I think that we carry a lot of, uh, I want to say limiting beliefs about money and, and, and society has stigmatized conversations about money. So it can be very difficult. And then also when we're talking about someone's child's behavior, it can be perceived as if it is a judgment of that parent. Right. Right. And so, or of that child and in a way that the parent or the caregiver is going to feel really defensive. And so we're worried about those things going in usually of how are they going to perceive this? And I love that you were talking about this idea that I know in my heart of hearts (laughs) that I'm amazing. And I think that I, I think that that's a really important place to start is that the key to all of our success, I believe, is the conversations that we're having. But that f- the first level of that is our internal conversations. Mm. And so we have to be looking at the places where our internal conversations are getting in the way of us being our most empowered selves. Yes. And, and a lot of times that is found in whatever our limiting beliefs might be. And so what are some things, I guess, I don't, I don't know how this conversation will go, but let's try it, Martha. Yeah. (laughs) When it comes to money, when you think about having that conversation with your, with your nanny family, what are some of the concerns or, or things that come up for you when you think about that? Um, so I think that one of the biggest ones is um, that asking for more money will make me look greedy um, or like like I care less about the children because I want more money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, or that I will ask for too much and because like our job is so personal that sometimes it feels like if we overstep our bounds like there is this worry that like we're going to be cut off from being able to see the children that we love Mm. so much you know what I mean like if we lose our job there's this whole extra layer of like does that mean I don't get to see these kids anymore Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's a lot of layers of very personal, important pieces that the relationship to the children matters, the relationship to the family matters. And, and that is outside of the context of you even working for them. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then from there, like there's a fear. Well, tell me more about this, like asking for too much, like what, do, what does too much look like to you or feel like, w- w- tell me more about that. Yeah. So, um, I think that, I think that, uh, asking for too much to me, um, and I've done a lot of work on this. So I'm trying to like, think back to when I didn't have as much of this type of work done, Cause now I, there, there, there isn't too much in my brain. Um, oh, great. I'm glad. 
or yeah, there's a lot less of that uh, talk. But back before, I had this idea of like too much would be like, yeah, just making me like seem full of myself or greedy or like, yeah, just like, ugh, like she, she's just in it for the money. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a fear that a lot of people have at all kinds of jobs, not just nannying jobs, but I think that it can be, like you said, quite personal when you're working in someone's home and you have such a close relationship with the family. Uh, I think that really, and it sounds like you've done some of this work personally already, Martha, and I'm curious, and I realize that that um, we're, we're thinking through like the ways to tackle these difficult or important conversations about pay, right? right. Um, but what is some of the work that you were able to do to like feel better about your own worth really, it sounds like. Yeah. So a lot of it is talking with other nannies who have helped build me up um, of like, and just that mantra of like, know your worth. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is that I am constantly working to be a better nanny. And so 10 years of consistently like reading childcare books in my free time, going to nanny conferences, speaking at nanny conferences, you know, like just over time that has built up to a point that I'm like able to really like look in the mirror and be like, I am the best version that I can be right now. Yes. I, you know, and I'm working to be better every day, but where I am is like a very, very good nanny who spends a lot of time thinking about how I can be an even better nanny. Absolutely. So I think that getting specific about your own worth, which it sounds like you have done a lot of that. It's not just the mantra, right? Like know your worth. Well, how do I know my worth? Well, I can look over my experience. I can look over my training. I can look over my dedication because sometimes we're starting from a place where maybe we don't have a lot of experience or, or training, but that doesn't mean we don't have worth that deserve to be paid for. Right. Right. And so the the level of effort, the level of dedication, uh, the level of investment is is worth it. And so I think doing some internal work about beliefs that you might have about me um, really is a great place to start. And then I think that, and, and then getting really serious about taking a hard look at at what you were talking about of like understanding your own worth. I love that you talked about talking to other nannies too, that having community and having people to build a understanding or a framework of what something is worth within a particular industry or whatever is Mm -hmm. super helpful. I also, on the other side of that though, I wonder if sometimes people limit their own worth because they compare themselves to others. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they go, oh, well, no one else is charging that. So I can't. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can because you are worth it. And will every family pay for that? Of course not. But will there be someone who pays for your worth? Absolutely. Yeah. So understanding that it's absolutely beneficial and helpful to have community. And, and I think that's how we have some accountability too, so that people are not on the other side of it 
being taken advantage of and working for too little. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I encourage people to really take self-stock uh, without comparison to what other people are, are quote unquote making and saying, well, I, I can't make any more than that because that's industry standard. Right. Yes. I think that that is super important to think about too, of, um, yeah, looking at what's listed as industry standard. Um, a lot of times that should be your floor, like, Mm -hmm. um, at the, you know, like that should be the very least that you're getting paid. If you are listening to this podcast, you are interested in being a better nanny and therefore (laughs) you should be getting paid more. Like you're spending free time listening to this podcast to become a better caregiver. Yes. Well, and I think that's another part of this. So we we're talking about this internal conversation piece, right? And then I think it's about really getting specific about what your wants and needs are. And I think that part of that is just becoming aware of our wants and needs, because I think that sometimes we only have a vague sense of them and we haven't taken the time to really sit down and get really clear and specific with ourselves about what our needs and wants are. Yes. Hey, it's me again. So that was part one of Radical Candor with Cassandra Quinn. Just as a reminder, if you want to listen to part two right now, you can't wait to hear where this is going because as good as part one is, part two is even better. I promise. Head on over to patreon.com slash chronicles of Nania and sign up to be a Patreon member today. You can get ad-free episodes and you can listen to part two right now. Have a great week. The Chronicles of Nania is produced and hosted by Martha Tyler. Artwork by Noni Blastodon. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Find him at secondbedroomstudios.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Chronicles of Nania and on Twitter at Nania Podcast. To contact us, email chroniclesofnania at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This show has been brought to you by Machine Culture. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.